My name is Jerry, one of the pastors, and it's good to see you guys all here. So yeah, so here we are in Acts chapter 2. I invite you to turn there in your copy of Scripture. Acts chapter 2, and we're going to be here in verses uh, 42 through 47. We are going to be talking about the idea of you will be one. You will be unified. Now let me ask you this question here. Here we are, we're talking about the local church. This was God's idea. This was God's plan. This was God's structure to change the world and to make a deep impact. And my question for you is, in America, how is the local church doing? Are we being successful? Are we making a difference? What do you think? Yes? All right, awesome. Very optimistic crowd this morning. I love it. Certainly you see part of that. You see some level of success. But I need to tell you here this morning is just kind of a downer backdrop to what we're going to dive into that in general, the church in America is not necessarily being successful. All right, let me tell you what I mean by that. There are 3,500 churches that close their doors every single year in America. 3,500. We can't do it anymore. We don't have the money anymore. The people aren't coming anymore. We're not being effective anymore. We can't pay our bills anymore. We, we've lost heart and we're done. That's 10 churches every single day in America closed their doors for the last time. Saddening, right? What about this one? Um, you know, of the churches that are up and existing, only 20% of them are actually growing. All right, think about that. Think about all the churches that you pass by day by day on every corner here in Cary and Morrisville, Apex and Raleigh, wherever you are. All See all these churches. 80% of those churches that you're passing are declining in membership. They're going down. Only 20% are growing. Of those 20% that are growing, 95% of that growth is coming from where? Other churches. So it's not that we're reaching our community and impacting the people around us. It's that maybe for a short level of time, hey, we've got a great kids ministry, we've got a great youth ministry, or somebody did something at XYZ Church that we don't like, and we're leaving that one, and we're going around, and we're checking out this other one, and we're moving, and yep, we can look at things like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're growing. But in general, 95% of growth comes from sheep leaving this pasture over here to go to that pasture. So it's just reshuffling the deck. Now listen, some of you are here visiting, you're like, oh wow, thanks for that, Pastor. Um, of course you need to find a place where you can plug in that preaches the gospel and there's going to be a process to that. We understand all those things and we welcome you here. But in general, what I'm saying is, man, our mission of really reaching the lost and reaching out to a lost and dying world, and when we think about the landscape of American Christianity compared to what it was 2,000 years ago, man, we are lacking in so many areas. And that's why it's so important for us, church, to, to enter into these Sundays with open minds and open hearts and say, like, okay, God, what do you want me to learn personally from what was happening in this early church? We see the explosion, we see the power, we see the lack of fear. What do you want me to do because of this? I don't just want to know more information, but I want transformation in my life. So it's not just the ideas of the apostles, right? What is the name of the book? The Acts of the Apostles. So that I can look back in my own life and see progress. So we can look back in the life of this church and see progress and action and impact. That's what we're praying for. 
Several weeks ago, we talked about the idea of Acts chapter 2, right? That incredible account early on where the Holy Spirit came down in fire and power and wind and miraculous, incredible circumstance. And we talked about how, you know, that empowers us to go make a difference. And I referenced two weeks ago when I spoke Revelation. You know, you read in the early parts of Revelation about these seven different churches that had these lampstands that were brightening up their cities, but those lampstands and that influence and that glory had been taken away. And our challenge here is what can we do as a body to become brighter and brighter and brighter so that we're impacting where we live? And Matt last week talked about Peter and how he was emboldened and empowered to stand up and preach the word with urgency. And I'll tell you what, if there's ever a time for us to be urgent with things of the gospel and with this idea of glory and showing it to the world, it is now. One other um, set of statistics I want to read to you as the backdrop of where we're headed. Did you know 88% of people that live in Wake County do not go to a Bible believing church i came here from the northeast up in new jersey and massachusetts and like that whole area up there and i love talking to people from there who are believers and we talk about how man it's so hard i mean there's a church of like 150 people and you think that's the greatest thing in the world because there's just not a lot of believers up there there's not that same presence that we feel is down here Right, because we're in the Bible Belt, and there's a lot of people that go to church, right? And that's kind of the unspoken impression. But 88% of the people that you meet around here live in the Triangle region, live in Wake County, do not go to a Bible-believing church. Don't go to church at all. Go to a liberal church that doesn't preach the gospel, don't believe this is God's word. That's what we're up against, guys. And how about this? Think about this one. You ready? There's 80 people moving into Wake County every single day. 80 people moving every single day. Everybody's coming to us. We talked about this in Acts 2, right? The nations were coming to us. 80 people every day into Wake County. And okay, Wake County's pretty big. We get all that. Let's just take a little, you know, diameter around of maybe within a 15-minute drive of where we are right now. Um, That's probably going to be more like 30 people or so moving in. But if we just took that... 30 people a day moving within an easy drive of this church, influence of this church. In a month, 30 days, that would be 450 people have moved in close to here in the last month. And remember, you take that 88% of them, that's 390 of them are not going to be going to a Bible-believing church or have influence by somebody that's been transformed into true Christianity. The statistics are staggering. And guys, now is the time for us. That's why we're diving into Acts. It's like, all right, Lord, what are you going to do? I, you know, we want to encourage people and inspire people like, okay, build a house. We want to inspire them to build a house. But if we never even give them a hammer or give them any tools, it's never going to happen. So that's why week after week after week in this series, we want to try to be giving you tools so that we can say, Lord, we, we tried as best as we could. We tried to preach your word as closely as we could, but you're the one who's going to empower people to step up and actually build your kingdom and share your kingdom. So this morning, we're talking about the idea of being one. And basically, um, I want to go ahead and read this passage to you briefly, and then I've got three different key 
phrases, key characteristics from the early church that we really need to be challenged with here this morning. So let's go ahead and read in verse 42. Let's find out what was going on with this early church and why we should be like them. Let's go ahead and start reading. It says, and they, that is the early believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing them, um, the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So here we have it, man, just in these five short verses, such a powerful description of what was happening in the early church. So if you're taking notes here this morning, again, we've just crafted it with three different points. The first one I want you to write down, what are the characteristics? Number one, they were devoted to the fellowship. They were devoted to the fellowship. Now when we think about an, a word like devoted, you're talking about where do you point your affections, your intellectual and emotional capital, what are you devoted to in your life? your finances, and if you were to ask any of your friends, hey, what would you say so-and-so is devoted to? What would the space be? What would they fill that in with? I know for me, and I know for many of you, there's constantly a barrage of things wanting our devotion, wanting our finances, wanting our time, wanting uh, so much of who we are. And that could be sports teams, that could be kids, that could be jobs, that could be a number of different things that are constantly vying for this limited space that we have right here. But for the early church, they said, no, you know what we're devoted to? We're devoted to each other. We are devoted relationally to each other into the fellowship. Now that word fellowship is a really interesting word that we need to kind of unpack a little bit here this morning. It's the Greek word koinonia. Everybody say koinonia. How many people grew up in a church where you had a fellowship hall? Fellowship hall is kind of the old school name for like this little hall where maybe you would go for some cookies and punch or like a potluck dinner on a Wednesday night or, you know, church fellowship. And it kind of seems like in, in our vernacular, it's almost been whittled down to this idea of like just eating together. That's fellowship. But the reality is what we want to see this morning goes way deeper than that, way different than that. Because the true idea of fellowship in koinonia means to have everything in common, to be unified together at the core, to have to rely on each other and believe in each other and, and spend time together and have the same mind and the same mission. And that's what's really going to accomplish anything in this world. Anybody ever been a part of a, a team at work or maybe a sports team or maybe some other organization where it was not unified in the least bit and everybody kind of had their own agenda but I want you to think about that for a second if you've experienced that kind of gathering where everybody's kind of got their own ideas and and people are just not unified it can really be frustrating 
I was thinking this week about when I was at um, Summit University. I was vice president of uh, my class for several years. It was really interesting because I can remember the dean of, of the whole entire college saying, man, your class has been more successful in events and in raising money than any other class we have ever had, ever, by like three or four times as much. All right, so we had all these creative ideas. We'd be, do these big campus-wide socials and all this money was coming in. And by the time we were seniors, we had like, I don't even know, maybe eight or $10,000 in the bank for our class as part of our treasury. And that was a lot of money back in the day, especially for a small school. But here's the thing. Our class was so unbelievably disunified that it really didn't mean anything. We'd have class chapels, we've had organizational meetings, stuff like that, where everybody that was in our class would come, and, and, and of a, a class of lots and lots of people, there was 20 people that would show up, 25 people. Nobody cared. Everybody had their own agenda, everybody had their own pocket of friends, and it was really difficult, tried as we did, to like rally people together and get them in the same heart, like it just didn't happen. So at the end of my senior year, here we've got $10,000 in the bank, and we're doing something really nice for the school. That was, that was part of it. But we're like, hey, we need to take a class trip. So anybody come who's interested? Again, nobody shows up. Very few people showed up. So we got all this money, and we got 20 people interested out of how many. So we're like, well, hey, this equals out to be some pretty good cash. So for our senior trip, we planned this trip to New York City. We stayed in downtown at the Marriott Marquis. We went to two separate New York Yankees games, completely paid for. We had a massive steak dinner uh, right downtown in the middle of Manhattan. We did all this stuff because we're just spending freely this capital that we had been working hard towards and nobody else wanted any part of it. And so there was a very real part. I remember sitting there with these, you know, 19 other people. And we're like, this is so great. This is so amazing. But I feel a little bit guilty about this. Can I actually order another T-bone steak, please? Yes, second one. Yes, that's good. But really, I feel guilty about this. But I remember the thought being, you know, we've got so much here. And this is so good. And it's really sad that there's not more people that could be a part of it and enter in to this goodness and this joy. If only we were more unified, more people could experience what we're experiencing. And I wonder sometimes, even at the macro church level, when we think about unity, we think about people buying in, we think about not having all these small little factions and divisions and group of people and people that don't quite step in and get involved, that if at the end of, at the end of days we're looking back and we're like, man, that was great at Northwest, man, we had a great run at Northwest, man, it was cool to serve at White Oak, man, it was cool to go on mission trips, it was cool to do those things, but I wish we could have gotten more people in the mix. It doesn't feel right that I get to show up and enjoy this and look people in the eye and give away these turkeys. And, and there were several other people there from Northwest. But what I'm saying is I wish all of you could have been a part of it. And here we are in February, and I was a part of it last year. Tim Tebow, Night to Shine, special needs prom, dancing around with people that they don't care what they look like. Because when you're celebrating the goodness of life and joy and, and celebrating each other, no matter what you look like, we're all God's children pouring that out. I want to bring everybody a part of that and want them to experience that. Unity, fellowship, 
devoted to one another means we recognize the beauty and the riches of deep-rooted commitment and friendship. And we want to bring everybody into it that we can in the shortest amount of time possible. And that's what you see happening here in Acts chapter 2. They were devoted to one another, to the fellowship. They had all things in common. And man, for us, and it's not this church, I'm saying American church, there's so many roadblocks to getting down to that gut level of true biblical fellowship, true sharing things in common. You know, Jesus prayed for us in the book of John chapter 17. In the book of John chapter 17, Jesus on, on that great night where he was sharing so deeply from his heart with his disciples, he prayed for his disciples, you know, that they would be strong. And he prayed for everyone that would believe in his name through their testimony. That's us. And you know what Jesus prayed for us? We were on his mind 2,000 years ago, guys. And what Jesus prayed for us is that we would be one. Christ said, even as I am in you and you are in me in the same way that I've got this relationship and this connectivity with my Father, I want my people to be one as well. So we connected that horizontal and the vertical relationship with each other horizontally and vertically with his Father. And what are the ways, what are the things that kind of get in our way of being unified and being one relationally with each other. I've got four things that I want to go over here that are taken directly from the book of Genesis chapter 3. Because remember, this was when Adam was there with Eve. They had true community. They had true community with God. It says in Genesis chapter 3, the Lord would walk with them. He would be with them. They enjoyed that fellowship, that koinonia, but then sin entered into the picture. And there became these barriers that kept them from that relationship with God and kept them from that relationship with other people. So this is what we see here again in Acts chapter 2 in this idea of true fellowship with each other. There's some roadblocks to that as well. I don't know how you walked in here this morning, but I hope that you walked in saying, you know what, these are people that really care about me. These are people that I can connect with. These are people that I can share with. But I've been around long enough to know that, man, that's not always true. There's some roadblocks there that we see evidenced even in Genesis 3 that are also true relationally with each other. What keeps us from true koinonia? Well, certainly there's fear. What keeps you from truly sharing who you are and what you're going through in your life? Maybe that's evidenced by kind of shallow conversations in the hallway or maybe even if you are a part of a life group or you're talking to people it's like hey what's going on oh you know i'm doing i'm doing pretty well you know works a little rough but but man there's something that really keeps you from jumping over and opening up deep and you're afraid in the same way that adam was afraid he said you know what lord uh i was afraid that's why you know because i know that you know something that i did did you catch that you ever find yourself driving along the, the roadway and you see one of those blinking signs that says your speed? You know what I'm talking about? But what happens immediately you slow down? Why? Well, it's one thing when you're driving along, you're just looking right at your speed. I can, I can look at my speed in half a second. But what's the difference? Somebody else now knows how fast you're going. And that's displayed right there for anybody to see. 
And I wonder sometimes if that's what keeps us from relational intimacy with each other. Again, this is all about, within the church context, this fear that says, I know my own weaknesses, I know where I'm falling, and and I know who I really am deep down inside, but I'm kind of afraid to let anybody else see that. I'm afraid of what that's going to do. I'm afraid of the lack of respect. I'm afraid that you're not going to accept me or anything else. And that, that's, that's where Adam was. Somebody else knows what I've done. I was afraid. Second one, shame. These are all quotes from Genesis chapter 3, by the way. These are all things that Adam went through. Number two, shame. I was, I was shameful because I was naked. And of course, I love the Lord's response. Who told you that you were naked? What are you even talking about? Well, now all of a sudden, all of these things that were meant for good, all of a sudden there's vulnerability, there's shame, there's embarrassment. And that's keeping Adam from this connectivity that he had with God. How about the third one? Adam said, so I hid. This idea of hiding. Do you think sometimes in social contexts, even in church contexts, there's some of that idea of hiding that goes in to, to, to what we do here? Like, oh, I can't get involved in a life group, it's just too busy, or, you know, I just, whatever, these little excuses that we make to just kind of hide and be in our own little world. And how about that last one, blame. Notice Adam says, hey, you know, it's not my fault. Uh, Why are we in this situation? Why is this there separation between us? Oh, it's the woman that you gave me. There's a double deflection going on there, blaming other people. And I wonder how even within our context of church community and friendship and koinonia, true koinonia, if there's not a blame game that goes along. And why can't we feel closer? Why can't we be open? Why can't we be honest? Why can't we be vulnerable? Well, I don't really, you know, that, I went to that life group once and they're kind of weird or, you know, I'm just every other excuse in the book as to why we can't have this fellowship early church had it man and they had it good they understood each other they shared with each other they weren't afraid to be honest with each other and that created a connectivity that was incredibly difficult to break even think about the idea of jesus uh you know it talks about incarnational ministry here we are at the end of November. We're leaning into December and these next few weeks as we begin our Christmas series, we're going to be talking about this and December 25th, you know, we're going to be celebrating Jesus coming down into the world and living among us. And I'm just telling you, church, if we want to be unified, if we want to be one, there's got to be that incarnational side that looks people in the eye and that comes down and dwells with them. So that we can laugh when they laugh, rejoice when they rejoice, and we can weep when they weep. And that was the awe, that was the incredible aura that characterized this church in Acts chapter 2. So what's your personal inventory as far as that stuff goes? You feel like you got a friend that you could share everything with? That you could share anything with? God wants those relationships to be a part of what the early church was. Number two, what else do we see? They displayed the generosity of God's kingdom. Man, amongst these early believers, it was, okay, no longer am I living for myself. This is the kingdom that's been set up, the culture that's been set up, how we've been doing it for uh, millennia, same as now. 
But no, this, this early church had a totally different context that says there's, there's God's kingdom mindset and it's filled with generosity. Look in verse 45. Check this out. And they were selling all of their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Guys, this early church was a breath of fresh air to the society because they basically held things very loosely with open hands. It wasn't, nope, all this is mine, 401k, stockpiling, uh, you know, savings and all this other stuff. And how are my kids going to pay for college? How am I going to, you know, support my retirement? And all the money's filtered off into this giant big nest egg. And I'm not saying that any of that's wrong. We know we need to prepare. We need to do that. That's biblical. But what I am saying is they had this attitude amongst them that if God gave it to me and it really does belong to him, how much more joy can I get from sharing that with somebody else that maybe needs it a little more than I do? Can you imagine how counterculture that was and how counterculture that is right now living where we live? Paul wrote to Timothy this uh, incredible passage that goes right along with this thought in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 and 18. And as for the rich, and by the way, guys, that includes all of us here. Right? You think about who we are and where we live and what we have. We are incredibly rich. Okay, so think about this. So as for the rich in this present age, charge them, that means challenge them, sharpen them, spur them on, charge them not to be haughty, not to be proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. Man, the early church, they didn't hold things tightly. They said, you need something, take it. I've got it. You've got a need. I've got resources, and it's not mine anyway. So how much more joy is there going to be in giving than taking? If there's ever a season where we see the futility and the depression of wanting so much and being disappointed two days after we get it, it's the Christmas season. Amen to that? Any of you who have kids here, you know exactly what I'm talking about. My son just texted me his list last night of what is on his heart and sweet little mind for Christmas. And not that there's anything wrong with that. But of course, we understand and the longer you live, the more you see there's an urgency and there's a futility in having more and more and more. And you see this characteristic of the early church, man. They were hospitable. It says that they broke bread in their homes. They had glad and generous hearts. These were people that were very highly invitational. All right, have we lost the art of hospitality in this culture, do you think? When's the last time you had somebody actually over to your house for dinner? I think many like, hey, I want to impact people, and I want to get to know people, so why don't we go out to dinner? Let's go meet at a restaurant. And that's great, but you know what? There's some level of safety in that, right? Because as the evening drags on, it's like, oh, you know what? It looks like, uh, you know, we've been holding up this table for too long. Let's, uh, let, let's, let's check, please, you know, like, 
Easy ways to cut off the night. Man, when you have people into your home, there's an element of vulnerability that's there. How are we going to end the evening if it's going south? Honey, what's a little code word that we have that means, okay, we need to... I'm just kidding. We really don't have that. But honestly, this idea of having people into your home, breaking bread in your home with generosity, with sincerity, that's what was going on in the early church. How much have we missed that? I'll tell you what, man. I love telling people about our church. I love bragging on our church. And when you think about this whole idea of displaying generosity, it's not just financial. And we've got a lot of that. But it's beyond that. It's being generous with your time. It's being generous with serving. And I threw out on Facebook midway through the week as I'm wrestling through some of this. I threw out there today. Any guys that are part of Northwest, if you've got a situation that happened to you where somebody else from the church or a group from the church came in, swooped in, and rescued in a, in a time where you really needed something, could you just write out a paragraph and just zap it to me? That would be awesome. And I got so many responses just from that little, throwing that out there, that I can't even share them all with you this morning. But I'm so thankful that that heartbeat does exist here. Listen to a couple of these. Hi, Jerry. Here's my quick story. When my mom died three years ago, not only did my life group bring us meals and help with the difficult task of packing up and moving all of my mom's stuff, but other people at church that I don't even know very well did so as well. And... They brought meals to my sister, who's not a believer, and she deeply appreciated it. She was blown away that strangers would do that for her, and I was excited that people were showing her Jesus' love to crack open her mind about the things of God. Isn't that incredible? How about this one? This, this woman says, we were not even in a life group yet about a year ago, and we had been going to Northwest for a very short time. My daughter and I were in a car accident and went to the ER. Kelly and Lisa, two of our awesome women, loved on my girl and brought her several surprises of goodies. They also brought us a meal. It touched my heart so much that I barely knew them at the time and that they would love on our family so much. It meant the world to us and we started going to their life group shortly after. How about this one? Hey, Jerry, I have the best story about supporting from the church community. When my son Mason was an infant, he had this weird episode where he went limp and he stopped breathing. It was super scary. The doctor said it can happen to anyone. There's really no explanation. It's called BREW, Brief Respiratory Unexplained Event. Anyway, that night, the Sherbings, another one of our couples, went out and bought us a special monitor that they found on one of those buy-sell trade groups that you put on your baby's foot to monitor their heart rate and oxygen levels. I mean, talk about a game changer. When you love on me, I'm so grateful. But when you love on my kids, I'm overwhelmed with gratitude. I love those two. They are one-of-a-kind friends. And ironically, <laughs> this same couple that bent over backwards to serve them they were the recipient in the very next email that I got, the Sherbings. Just this week, we experienced an urgent medical need which required us to be in the hospital at a very early hour. 
Without any hesitation, a couple from our life group family invited our kids into their home at 5.30 in the morning. They loved on them, fed them, and played with them. They prayed for us, and they gave us an entire day of rest and recovery, which we desperately needed. This couple has cared for us and our family time and time again and constantly give of themselves to serve so many people. They inspire us to be better Christ followers and have taught us what true dedication looks like. And my guess is we could hear dozens and dozens and dozens of these stories springing up from this body. But again, go back to that original illustration. Man, the wealth and goodness of steak and joy and everything. And we're like, man, why can't, why can't we have more people be a part of this? And my heart, even this morning, is for some that are still kind of on the outskirts. You've got those roadblocks that are keeping you from really stepping in, being open, being honest, being vulnerable. And you'll notice here in this passage in Acts chapter 2, it's like, oh man, people would be sharing everything. People would be giving everything. They had something. Somebody needed something. They gave something. Well, guess what? There was at some level an opportunity where somebody that needed something needed to share that. The early church wasn't mind readers. And I wonder how many people come in and there's something going on in your life. There's a difficulty. There's a fear. There's suffering. There's a situation. And yet you don't feel even comfortable enough to bring somebody else into that and to share that so that we can come alongside and do the biblical thing as the body of Christ should be doing. The challenge is this. We as a staff purposefully decided not to have a Thanksgiving uh, Sunday meal together this next Sunday. Any of you that have been around Northwest for a while know that we've done that for, for several years. We have one service at 10 o'clock, afterwards transform that whole area, lots of tables, food, shenanigans, whatever, and we have a huge, massive meal together. But you know what we said months ago? Man, we're talking about Acts. We're going to be right in Acts 2. We're going to be right in this awesome passage. And you know what it talks about? Breaking bread in their homes day by day. Hospitality. Bringing people into their story. Diving deep. Amazing conversation. And a lot of times that isn't necessarily going to happen out there. We want to give our people an opportunity to open up the resources that God's given them and invite somebody into their home. So here's my challenge over the next two weeks. All right, my challenge for every family here is I want you guys to invite another family from our body that you have not had over to your house before, invite them over. And I don't want you to engage in small talk. Man, it's time to go much deeper than that, man. We're getting down to the heart of the matter. There's, there's, there's so much going on in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives. We can just, with a few questions, get down there to the depths. What are the things that you guys are wrestling with as a family? How can we pray for you guys as a couple, what are the fears that you guys have been enslaved to that have kept you from really doing all that you feel like God would have you do? And I got a crazy one for you. Five years from now, looking back at this very moment in your life, this slice, this frame right now, five years from now, what would you want to be true of you looking back? That'll mess you up. I got a 15-year-old and a 13-year-old and an 11-year-old right now. And I'm thinking about five years from now where they're going to be a 20-year-old and an 18-year-old 
and a 16-year-old. Looking back five years from now, what did I wish that I did? What did I wish that I said? How did I wish that I spent my time? Those are the deeper questions of life. And that's what we want to get down to. And that's what our challenge is for you as far as that stuff goes. And finally, man, what do you see what happens? Number three, the church grew and exploded because of this incredible love that they had for each other. You talk about a testimony. When people share about what other people from the body of Christ have done when they were in need, that's how things grow. End of chapter 2, verse um, Verse 47, this is what the people were doing. They were praising God. They were having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. A church that overflows with this kind of authentic, sacrificial love for each other is going to be something that our culture has never seen. And that by itself is going to be attractive, right? What did Jesus say? They'll know that we are Christians by our love. It's incredible. I'm reading this book right now that is absolutely blowing my mind. And it's about the early church in the first couple of centuries, first couple hundred years. And the premise of this author's book is basically, why would anybody want to become a Christian in the first three centuries. Christians were the most hated, abused, persecuted, thrown in prison, their goods and their money taken away, their family separated. They were the worst. They were the most hated. Why would anybody want to be one of those? And it highlighted five key characteristics that went so countercultural to the Roman government and the Roman way of life in which this church was born. And I want you to think about these five things. Again, this is 2,000 years ago we're talking about. This is what caused Christianity to be separated and different from the Roman way of life, and it's also what caused them to be so attractive. Check these out now. Number one, you know why Christians were different? They forgave the people who were hurting them. Now, you got to understand, in the Roman culture, as well as most other cultures, it was a shame and honor type of culture. In other words, if you dishonored that person by doing something to them or stealing something from them or hurting them in some way, you dishonored them, you caused shame on them, guess what? It was going to be revenge. That's the way things worked. And that was fair. You do something to me, I'm doing something to you. You dishonor me, I am dishonoring you. You do something that caused me shame, man, I'm going to do the same thing to you. Christians were the ones that freely forgave those who were persecuting them, even before they asked. Think about that. It's one thing if you've got some sort of personal issue with a family member or somebody else that used to be a friend and they've done something, they've said something or whatever, and it's like, well, you know what, even if they ask me, even if they humble themselves, even if they come up to me and ask me for my forgiveness, I'm going to I'm have to really think on that. Maybe I'll forgive them if they ask me. What did Jesus do on the cross? There was no Roman soldier saying, hey, you know what, son of God, we are so sorry. Will you please no? No. Without any prompting, the Son of God said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's true love. How about the second one? Sexually 
they were exclusive. Again, compared to the Roman culture that they were in, it was not freely just do whatever you want, use and abuse the dignity and the honor that God created along with sexuality, use it for your own pleasure. Nope, that's gone. It's I believe that God created something better and something that is going to hold us together and so the marriage vows are going to become sacred. That was completely counterculture. How about this third one? The early church, early Christians, they were known for being incredibly generous with their money. We talked about that here a little earlier, but I want to read you this one quote. This is so eye-opening. This is by a historian, apologetic. His name is Diognetus, and this is right around uh, the turn of the century. Okay, so right around 100, 110, 120 A.D., and he was an early Christian in the, in the early church, had exploded with this love and this new economy and this new kingdom. And he was writing all the characteristics of the early church. And check out what he says here. He said, this is so different. The way we are different from the Romans is this. We share our tables with everyone, but not our beds. And that was the opposite. The Romans were like, hey, we'll share our beds with anyone. We will use sexuality as a conquest and as pleasure, and we'll do that with anyone. But our tables, that's reserved for family. People that we love, people that we know, people that we're connected with, that's who we share our possessions with. And the early Christians came in and they said, nope, we are flipping that thing around. Our beds are sacred. And we're not sharing that with anyone, but our tables and our possessions and our friendship and welcoming people in, that is open. And we're going to invite anybody that wants to come into this feast of love and generosity. Isn't that awesome? They were against abortion and infant exposure even 2,000 years ago. The Roman culture, this child was born. It's not the gender that I wanted. It's not the right time. I can't take care of them. They would throw them literally out on a garbage pile. And it was the Christians who were known for taking them in, whether or not they had the money or not. This is a life. This is dignity. This is the image of God. And whether or not they're part of our race and part of our culture, it doesn't matter. We're going to rescue. 2,000 years ago, that was true. Today, that's also true. I can't wait for two weeks from now right here on this stage. We're going to have a special Sunday focused on this idea about adoption and caring for the orphan and the stories of hope and love and waiting that are here right within our body. It's still true today. And the last one as we close is just this idea that those early Christians, they were cheerful in their suffering. Again, how did this movement absolutely explode when they were so persecuted. It's because they were persecuted and they were suffering, but they were not alone. They had koinonia. They had fellowship. They had sharing. In other words, if you're going through something bad, I need to know about that. I need to be a part of that because I need to help lift you up. What's it talk about in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 4, round about verses 9 through 12? It talks about some, maybe we hear a lot about weddings, but man, you know, it is so blessed to have somebody next to him. Blessed is a man who has a friend next to him, for when he falls down, his friend can help him up. But cursed be the one that has no one to help them up. The early Christians had this 
idea of suffering that God's got something for me. God's going to purify me. God's, this is not where my life is anyway. I can't wait to be up there with him. And if God's going to have me die for my faith right now, so be it. I can't wait to be with him. That'll be far better. But the early church came around those who were suffering, stood with them, looked them in the eye, and carried that weight. And that's why they were able to be cheerful, even in suffering. So man, I don't know, church, where any of that lands on you here this morning. <laughs> I mean, we've talked about so much, and it's so rich, the characteristics of this early church. And sometimes when you compare that with the American church, you're like, man, what are we doing? But it's up to me and it's up to you guys to take that first step, to share deeply, to share openly, and to be aware and to be ready and say, God, what needs are around me? How can I run to the rescue? How can I share this goodness that you shared with me? And that's how we're going to see an explosion, amen? That's what God wants his church to be. So I'm going to invite our band to come on out here, and I'm going to ask you guys just to go ahead and bow your heads, and let's go ahead and stand up to our feet, and I'm just going to close this in prayer, praying for you as we, uh, as we get ready to um, start to sing this last song. God, you know the hearts and minds of every person that is in here this morning. Lord, you divinely orchestrated that they would be here at the Northwest Community Church at the 1045 service, and Lord, that your word would be preached and that this passage would be outlined. And God, you, in the power of your Holy Spirit, can convict and lead in change, in life change. And so, Lord, I pray, even this morning, uh, whatever's going on in somebody's heart, whatever fears that they're wrestling with, whatever uh, barriers that they've been holding up, God, that you would just smash those down. And that you would just allow this to continue to be a place that people genuinely love each other from the heart. And Lord, that you would continue to allow this to be a generous place that shares freely of our time and of our resources. God, we know that it all belongs to you anyway. And so Lord, I just pray that we would see freedom and break out, God. And that the love in this place would so overflow, the love that we have for each other would so overflow into a world that is so devoid of it that they couldn't help but be attracted to what's happening here. So we love you so much, God, and we just thank you for your word, and we just thank you for this time that we could share. And Lord, I pray that we would step out in faith. Lord, that you would call us forward, call us onward. We love you, God. In your son's name we pray.